Please open your copy of God's Word to the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel as we continue together in our series on Mark's Gospel. Now, we will be looking this morning at verses 32 through 45. Next Lord's Day, hopefully, we will be focused on verse 45 only. I'm very much looking forward to that. And then we will take a break from Mark during the Christmas season and return to it after the Christmas season. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. Will you pray with me? O oh Lord, the Word of God, all-powerful, strange, mysterious, because it is the Word of the triune God, comes to us from the hand of our perfect Holy Spirit without error, without any admixture of error, completely reliable, altogether trustworthy. And it is here on the page of Holy Scripture that we see ourselves the depth of our depravity, the seriousness of our need, our hell-deservedness. But also we see, thanks be to God, what Jesus has done to redeem us from our sins and to release us from the pit and to establish us upon the rock. And so even now, lead us to that rock that is higher than I. Help us, Heavenly Father, each of us to be enabled to say, I trust in Christ, I believe his word, and hang upon its every promise. And we pray that our young people in particular in this present evil age in which they are taught that the Bible is not reliable and not trustworthy on every hand, taught that human autonomy is somehow superior to God's word, we pray that the word of the Lord will fill each young person's mind and heart and that they will live according to this word all of the days of their lives. For life without the Bible, without the word of God controlling our thinking and living, life is absurd. Father, draw some ones here today who do not know Christ and cause them to see that Christ is an altogether sufficient savior for sinners. And we pray that someone who walked into this place lost today will leave today saved from his sins. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. <clears throat> Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. This is the Word of God. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, 
one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. <clears throat> and when the ten heard it, <clears throat> they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, as we move into these chapters, we have the sense that there's weight in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if his heart throbbed desire of bringing glory to God and saving you and me from our sins beats all the harder, all the faster, as we see our Savior in this death march to Jerusalem. And it is as 18th century New Testament scholar J.A. Bengal put it when he thought of these passages, Christ was dwelling in his passion. That is to say, his soul was absorbed with what he was going to Jerusalem to accomplish. His whole life was moved and motivated by the depth of what it meant that he would sacrifice himself for our sins on the cross. And he's overwhelmed to consider the cross to which he will go, upon which he will bear the wrath of God that we sinners deserved. And as we come to this passage this morning, there are two things. One is the grandeur of the cross, and the other is the utter humility to which the grandeur of the cross calls every believer in Jesus Christ. And the first thing that you'll note as we come to the passage is, this is first, this is the third prediction of his passion. If you'll turn back in your Bible to chapter, <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 31. Here's the first of the three, chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then in the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, 
and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And then back to the chapter this morning, chapter 10, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And so the Lord Jesus Christ three times has taught his disciples increasingly with more detail about what will happen as they move to Jerusalem and he goes to the cross. And readers of Mark, for the very first time reading this gospel, you've read it, you know the gospel of Mark, you have the epistles to read, you know why he came, but imagine that you were reading Mark's gospel for the very first time, and you come to this passage, and you've read these three announcements of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you say, why did he have to die? Why is he going to the cross? And that very sense of weight is found with the disciples as they notice that he has set his, his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. For in verse 32, we read these two words, amazement and also fear. As they were on the road going to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Why were they amazed? Because they know that Jesus is going to a place where it has been announced that they want to kill him, and where he has announced that he would die. Why are some afraid? Probably not only afraid for Jesus, but afraid for themselves, for to be connected with Jesus meant that they themselves might be troubled by the leaders of the Jews, or perhaps even go to death. But for whatever reason, there's a sense of weight in Christ's determined march. The feel of it is here. Can you, can you sense it? The feel of it, the, the weight of it, the, the heaviness of what is about to take place. And he gives this very full prediction that the Son of Man shall be handed over into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall hand him over to the Gentiles. This was a new element because the Gentile leaders are the ones who will be responsible actually for putting him to death. They shall mock him, spit on him, scourge him, that is to say, flog him and kill him. But there is this note of triumph. After three days, he shall rise again. And so, loving his disciples, he is gradually preparing them for what is ahead as he moves to the cross. And they perceived that he was in mental agony. Why is he in agony? Well, of course, he is going to the cross, and there his hands and his feet will be nailed to the cross. A spear will be thrust through his side. Yes, who would not be in agony to consider such a death? But there's more, far, far more. The reason his soul is in agony is because this is holiness personified, because this is the impeccable Son of God. This is the one who is completely without sin, and yet he knows that when he goes to the cross that he is going to bear the sin of his people. In his body and in his holy soul, he will bear our sin. He will be seen of the Father as sin itself upon whom the wrath of God must be poured 
surely we can understand that this weight on the soul of the Son of God, though we cannot perceive it because we are sinners in need of grace, for Him, the Holy Son of God, to know that this is the cross to which He was going, surely we can see there's emotional agony here. And it's plain to see as the narrative proceeds that there is greatness in service. Greatness in service, that's the second thing. James and John's request in verses 35 and following is a rather amazing request, don't you think? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we read in verse 35, came to him and said, teacher, we want to, you to do this, to do whatever we ask of you. And he said, what do you want me to do? And they said, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now, this shows a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus is talking about here, that they would actually come to him and ask him on the heels of his saying that he would be put to death by the Sanhedrin, he would be put to death by the Gentiles, that he would be spat upon, that he would be flogged, that he would go to the cross, and then for them to say, well, Lord, can you put one of us on either side of you in your glory? What must they be thinking? They still must have thought of the Messiah in worldly terms. They still must have thought that he was going to conquer the Romans initially and then bring in very quickly the consummated kingdom and then he will gloriously reign and one can be at his right and one at his left. The sons of Zebedee and our Lord on this matter are quite opposite each other. It shows in their different choices. They are choosing for self-glory Jesus is choosing for the glory of the Father. Lo, in the volume it is written of me, I come to do thy will, O my God. They want power. Jesus has resigned his power himself for you, that you might be saved from hell. They seem to want comfort. Christ gives himself over to death, even death on a cross. There is no comfort for him. He will cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus responds to them, the way to glory. You want to know the way to glory? The way to glory is through the cross. The way to glory is through the cup of baptism of wrath. The cup image we will look at more when we come to Gethsemane. But for now, simply realize that this cup image, which is taken from various places in the Old Testament, is an image of total ruin and divine judgment. And Jesus says, I'm going to take your total ruin. I am going to take the divine judgment that you deserved to pay. And that is what he did when he went to the cross. And so there is nothing with which to charge us in God's court of law, since our sins were nailed to the cross and made fast there, publicly and legally canceled. We can, there is nothing that ever can be brought up against you, believer, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now God's favor is upon you, and he gives us pure white raiment to stand in God's presence, because Jesus bore our total ruin. And every time I think of the cross and I think of these things, I remember and paraphrase in my head the words of Robert Murray McShane in which he tries to get at the depth of all of this and simply can't do it. 
And he says, I feel like a little child standing on the edge of some deep ravine and casting down stones, listening for it to hit the bottom and unable to hear. Or like a sailor casting his leads at sea, trying to sound the depths and to find the bottom, but unable to find the depths of the ocean. Because, he says, the depth of the sacrifice of the Son of God is unfathomable. And that is what our Savior endured, all because he was willing to drink the cup. And so he says to them, well, are you willing to go with me? In verse 38, Jesus said to them, you, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And again, to me, the astonishing answer of these two sons of Zebedee is, yeah, we can. We can do that. Again, I think it's total misapprehension. They cannot have comprehended the depth of it all. They do not see the depth of their own need yet, and so they cannot see the depth of the suffering of the Savior. They do not comprehend the grandeur of the cross as the time will come, and they will begin to understand. And I wonder, as they are coming gradually, as they are taught by the Savior, and they're coming gradually to understand the meaning and the significance of the cross, are many of us, like the disciples, still coming to see our need of the cross? You know, it is so totally contrary to the modern stress on self to say, I deserve God's infinite displeasure. I deserve hell in and of myself. God's love has no meaning in this great matter of the cross. It has no meaning without the awful wrath, the cup, and the baptism. The cup has meaning only because of God's character, and I wonder, do you see this? James Denny was a 19th century theologian. I've read a good deal of his work. I do not commend a lot of his work, and yet Denny sometimes says things that are of great importance. Denny had an illustration that's famous and clear of seeing our need of the cross. Here you have a man and he's sitting on the edge of a pier enjoying a fine summer's day when someone comes and jumps into the water right in front of him in order to prove his love. Now how would that prove love to this man? The man on the pier may be in great need of love, but this act would not be intelligible, would not show the man that he is loved. But imagine that the man sitting on the edge of the pier falls in, and he cannot swim, and he is drowning, and then someone jumps in at the risk of his own life or gives his own life for him in order that he might not drown and in order to save him. Then we would say greater love has no man than this. The man in the water would see he is loved because he would see an intelligible connection between his need and the man's sacrifice for him. Now that's the intelligible connection between the sinner's need and the cross of Christ. He bore the sins of sinners. He died our death because I was drowning and could not save myself from it. I could not be saved, but Jesus jumped in and gave his life for me. Do you see the connection? 
And so only Jesus could die for sinners in the sense that his satisfaction of God's wrath is something that only he could accomplish. No one can participate. So are you willing to go with me? Can you go through what I'm going to go through? Sure, they say, yes, we can do this. The answer is no, you can't. Jesus doesn't dwell on it here, but it will become obvious as they move on through Mark's gospel and they, and they see him upon a cross. No, you can't, because only the impeccable Son of God could bear our sins on the cross. Only he could remove the wrath of God for us. He must do this alone. There is no one else that can go with him. When he cries on the cross, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was alone. He is altogether the sufficient Savior. There is none other. Only Christ could do this. But in another sense, we are in union with Christ in his death. And we read in verse 39 in the second part of the verse, when they say, we are able, Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. What does he mean by that? Well, they don't know yet, do they? But we know. We know that James, you can read about it in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that Herod killed him with a sword. And John, John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.5 is so true in this, in this particular instance to apply to what will happen with James and John, the afflictions of Christ overflow toward us. Still, only he could make atonement. Only he could drink down the bitter dregs of the cup of God's justly deserved wrath. Now, Jesus adds, to give this position on my right or on my left, when there is the consummation of the kingdom, it's not for me to give. I'm the mediator. Yes, he is the second person of the Trinity, but he is God become man. He has come into this world, and as mediator, it is not his role to do this. It is the Father's role to do this. And so, as soon as we move on ahead in Mark's gospel, we will find that Christ's throne will be a cross, and on his right and on his left will be two thieves, not two disciples of the twelve. And the ten are indignant. Who are you, James, John? Who are you to try and work your way into these positions and leave us out, to try and work ahead of us, to try and take positions and to, to, to use your, 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 uh, your power perhaps with Jesus, your closeness to him in order that he can put you in those positions. And we know from Matthew's gospel that their mother was behind this. Their mother wanted this for them. Well, patiently, Jesus calls them together and he teaches them and says in verse 42, he called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus speaks of those who are powerful and influential among the Gentiles. Not so with you. There is no room for lordliness in my kingdom, not among my disciples. 
And the Greek words that are translated here, lord it over and exercise authority, are words that mean abuse of power, exploitation of the ruled. And he does not mean that there's no rightful authority. He means wrongly wielded authority. There is no place for that in Christ church. And indeed, whoever wants, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Greatness in my kingdom and in my church is service to all. And the word for servant here is the word diakonos, which in the ancient world was not a good word. It was a pejorative word. It was a word that brought with it a, a sense of humiliation, and, and it was not a word that would have been used for something for which someone should, should long. And then lowly service was not to be sought and then the word servant, the second word here is the word doulos, which means slave. You must be the slave of all. And just as when Jesus later will take a towel and wrap it around his waist and he will wash his disciples' feet, showing the pattern of Christian service is that of a slave. So he says to them, in other words, in the church, greatness is not measured by being served, but by benefiting and advancing others. Self-serving, worldly greatness has no place in Christ's church, in the Christian's life, in the Christian's heart, in the Christian's home. There is no room for exploitation, using others for self-aggrandizement. There is no place for wives putting down husbands. There is no place for husbands mistreating wives or for church members thinking ill of faithful but fallible officers or for officers failing to lead according to the word of God because grace always flows downhill. Always. So why? You see the connection here. The cup the baptism with which he will be baptized, the atonement that he will make, this great question, these disciples wanting to be in a place of position and power. Well, why? Why is lordliness out of place in Christ's church? The answer is because it is an attitude that is inconsistent with the purpose of Christ's coming. The third thing we see the purpose of Christ's coming. And it's found here in verse 45, which we touch on this morning. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus uses this term lutron, ransom, that is taken from the Old Testament. For example, the half shekel poll tax in Exodus chapter 30 verse 12 speaks of a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. Or in Exodus 21 verse 30, it's used of the money that someone had to pay in order to redeem his life because his ox had killed someone. Or in Leviticus 25, the money by which a next of kin would ransom a relative from slavery. And there is connection between Jesus' language and that of Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. 
And oh, that we could just take time and read it all again, but just listen to two verses again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. But there's more. He uses a little preposition, the preposition auntie. And auntie is the preposition of substitution. It is the preposition that is used here that he would give his life a ransom for many, that is, in the place of many, as a substitute for many. In my place condemned he stood. We have here in this one verse 45, penal substitutionary atonement. It's penal. He pays the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. It's substitutionary. He did this in your place in order to make atonement at one meant that we might be reconciled to God. One theologian said, and I contemplate it with some regularity, a theologian whose name I could mention, a profound theologian for sure, but he said that only the damned in hell can understand what Jesus endured. Now, I appreciate what he's after, but he's wrong. The damned in hell will pay forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever for their sins. Yet they will never understand what Jesus endured when he went to the cross. Only the infinite, eternal Son of God become man. Only Jesus Christ, the impeccable Son of God, only the one whose holy body and soul could bear that wrath. Only he can begin to understand and to exhaust what it means to bear the Father's wrath against sin. Yes, we would have borne God's wrath if Jesus had not taken our place, but let us never forget that only Jesus is God's unique Son, and only He could bear our sin and take God's wrath. We just really can't imagine what it meant that He bore our hell for us. Now, the theme of the text here is quite simple. Jesus is going to die for us, and because He went to the cross for us, therefore there's no room for self-seeking in our lives. Yes, the theme is simple, but it's not so simple, is it? That is to say, what it cost the Son of God in order that He might be our Redeemer and save us from ourselves and from our sin, that's not simple at all. We are free, we are ransomed, because he bore our iniquity and paid our penalty, but did so only as the beloved of the Father could. And we are ransomed. There will not be one empty seat in heaven. 
all of Christ's redeemed people will be there. To say substitution is to say particular redemption. He literally, actually paid your debt that you and I owed to God because having sinned against his infinite holiness, we deserve to pay an infinite debt we could never have paid. He paid that infinite debt. I've heard Joel Beakey speak several times of a, you know, a woman that was in his congregation for a while. Originally, he met this woman and her husband. They benefited from his ministry. And this, um, this, this man was in another state, uh, but they kept in contact with, with Dr. Beakey. And this man, I believe, contracted cancer and he died. But as he was dying, he told his wife, you don't have to worry about a thing. I have this offshore investment. It's a million dollars or more, and you're going to be fine. Everything will be taken care of. His loving husband wanted to take care of his wife, and he died. One request he had is, move to Grand Rapids, sit under the ministry of Joel Beakey so I can know that you're going to be fed God's word and that you're going to learn and grow. And she did. She moved there. And then one day she went to the bank in order to withdraw a little money and there was nothing there in the account. It had been some kind of scam. All the million plus was gone. There was a man from Ontario that came to Grand Rapids and met this woman and fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. She resisted for quite a while, evidently, but they did marry. And she said, maybe we should sue for that million dollars. He said, don't worry about it. This was a wealthy man in Ontario. Don't worry about it, he said. I've got it covered. All your debts are paid. You'll never have to worry again. And today she still lives in Ontario with this man who has covered all of her debts. My friend, that's what Jesus did for you. You had a debt you could never pay. Your account was withdrawn, overdrawn. It was a debt you could never have paid. He paid your debt in order that you might be redeemed from your awful sins. He is a ransom for his people. And that is why the lordliness of the world has no place in my life or yours. Why the values of the world are not our values. Why the Christian who manipulates and seeks to wrangle for position is not following the call of the gospel simply because it is inconsistent with what Jesus did for us when he gave himself on the cross. Listen to those precious words from Philippians chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We then cannot rip each other apart when we realize that Jesus was ripped apart by God's wrath for us. This is the fundamental truth that needs to control our thinking, our hearts, our relationships with one another, our homes, our marriages. Because as someone rightly has said, no man, no man can bear witness to Christ and to self at the same time. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We are the servants following in his path because of the way we have been served in the infinitely valuable atonement when he shed his blood on the cross as a ransom for our sins. Amen. Amen.